With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. You are joining us for our fourth episode in the Best of the Decade series, our podcast series looking at all of the tennis from the 2010s, the 10 years of fantastic tennis we were treated to as tennis fans, the ups, you know, obviously on the ATP side, the big four, and we will get into some of those other WTA highlights as well. But these past two weeks, we've talked about the ATP and WTA players who came close closest during the decade, but ultimately came up short in their chase for a Grand Slam. Now, in that course, obviously, there on the men's side, there have been, I believe, five, maybe six players. I think it's six players who have won Grand Slam. On the women's side, there were 19. So there's a big discrepancy there. And with that, you know, we wanted to take a closer look at that this episode. And that's what we're going to be doing. We are going to be looking at why during the 2010s were only six men able to win their first Grand Slam. What was it about this general of players that came of age during the 2010s that ultimately held them back? You know, were there signs we can take from what happened to them as we look towards the Zverev aged group as well as the even younger FAA Sinner aged group and, you know, lessons we can take as we're watching their career rise? And there is no better guest for us to break down that subject than our guest on today's podcast. For those of you who, like me, have been fan of the tennis blogosphere, tennis Twitter sphere universe for their entire lives, you may recognize his work from Peter Bodo's Tennis World back in the day, his early work at Tennis.com, his work for the changeover. Most recently, he's worked with our good friends Matt Zemek and Sakib Ali at Tennis with an Accent, TennisAccent.com. Uh, listeners, welcome Andrew Burton. Andrew, hey, great shot and welcome to the podcast. Hey, delighted to be here, Alex. Uh, I should say, Matt has been trying to play matchmaker between us for months now. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So Matt and I go way back, uh, back to the uh, the days when would Nadal win a Wimbledon title? Would Federer win a Roland Garros title? And uh, in in two thousand and nine, uh, Matt was saying focus and finish to Federer, who probably didn't need his advice. And uh, I was bouncing off the walls when Del Potro broke back in the fifth set in their, their Roland Garros semifinal. So, yeah, Matt and I go way back. <laughs> oh, you had to send messages to one another via Pony Express. You're like, Matt, you're not going to believe what happened a fortnight ago. Um, that's, that's how long you guys go back. I, I love to hear that. And I should say, I apologize. I was hoping for a more subtle landing than him just straight up tweeting, hey, we want to have you on the pod. I was hoping maybe I could get you in the DMs, maybe a text message. But seriously, your willingness to come on. I know I speak for both all of us at the Crack Rackets Tennis Channel Podcast Network team and our listeners when I say we appreciate having you for this conversation. Delighted to be here. 
Okay, so enough flattery. Now we can get into the real stuff. As I mentioned to our listeners from the top, today's subject, uh, really uh, to simple it down to one phrase, it's the lost gen. And for people who have not aren't familiar with your work, you've written about the subject multiple times, the lost gen on the ATP side, a generation you refer to as Generation Grigor. Now for our listeners, that generation covers players born, I believe, after 1998 and up until 1993. Um, and to even start our conversation, you go in five-year segments. Now, I have way more ego because I like to think I'm young. I was born in 1995. <laughs> I categorize everyone after 1995 as young. They're still up and coming because I'm up and coming. But you get much more specific, and I appreciate that. So let's start there. Why is five-year segments uh, your criteria, and how did you ultimately come up with this age group for Generation Grigor? So... I started off looking at players' career arcs, you know, how their how their careers went from the time that they started in the top 50. Uh, they, they rose up uh, to compete for Grand Slams and for Masters titles. And then you, you have the, sort of the, the, the long dying of the light, as Dylan Thomas might have called it. And so I was, I was, I was doing a lot of work looking at that, and taking a look at, you know, first of all, the Federer generation and the Nadal generation. Federer was born in August uh, 1981. Nadal was born in June 1986. So there's four years and ten months between them. And then somebody on Twitter said, "Well, make it five years." So yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> so you have Federer. Uh, who's born in the middle of 1981. So that made sense for me to say, okay, the generation that grew up with Roger Federer is between 1979 and 1983. The generation that grew up with Rafael Nadal is born between the start of 1984 and the end of 1988. So it originally started with Generation Fed and Generation Rafa. And if I could, and just sorry to provide our listeners, because again, go check out his work, tennisaccent.com. I'm sure we'll be plugging it throughout the podcast, but this one, a portrait of ATP generations as young men. For our listeners who are curious, what does 1979 to 1983 players look like? That's the Hewitt, Roddick, Safin, Ferrero, uh, Coria, Ferrer, Nelbandian, Lubacic, Davidenko, Robredo, and obviously Federer generation. And for listeners who have followed the game closely, obviously you have if you're listening to this podcast. That does sound like a cohort, right? That Federer's been able to age the uh, age so well and outlive those guys speaks to his greatness. You talk about that generation, Rafa, um, for listeners again, what those years look like. Rafa, Djokovic, Murray, Del Potro, Gasquet, Burdich, Monfils, Soderling, uh, Baghdadis, Sanga, Simone, Wawrinka. Those are the guys who have you know dominated the 2010s, right? In terms of their prime was the entire span of the of the decade, correct? Yeah, I think that um, the thing that you, you you tended to see until quite recently, and I think this is something that we'll get into as this podcast goes on, is that historically tennis players' prime years have been between the time they've been aged between about twenty three and twenty eight or so. So the the guys, not just Federer, Ferrero, Hewitt, but guys like um, 
Fernando Gonzalez, for example, he's generation fed. He was uh, a surprise Australian Open finalist in uh, 2007. Robin Soderling, a, a little bit of a surprise, obviously, because he beat Rafa in 2009 at Roland Garros, but he was also a finalist, having beaten Federer in 2010. So you'd expect the, the, the Federer generation to be at their peak, probably between about 2004 and 2010. Fast forward five years, you'd expect Generation Rafa to be at their peak between 2009 and 2015 or so. And historically, these patterns repeat. You, you basically, before Generation Fed, there was Generation Guga. Before Generation Guga, there was Generation Pete. And then after Generation Rafa comes Generation Grigor, players born between 1989 and 1983. Why Grigor? Because he's born in 1991, right in the middle. Then after that, you get um, players born between 1994 and 1998. I call those guys Generation Nick. Uh, Nick Kyrgios was actually born in 1995, so he's not slap bang in the middle, but yeah, okay, Generation Nick, that's what I went with. And then players born between 1999 and uh, 2003, I call those guys Generation Felix for Oji Aliasim. And today was a special day. You know, we're recording this podcast on Sunday, and Denis Shapovalov became the first player from Generation Felix to make a Masters 1000 final. Go back 20 years, the Paris tournament of 1999, Marat Safin was the first mm -hmm. player from Generation Fed to make a Masters 1000 final. It wasn't called the Masters Thousands back in those days, but he was the first player to to make one of those nine tournament finals. So these patterns have typically repeated themselves with variations and, you know, sport, tennis, music, patterns plus variations. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. I, I wanted to say in your introduction, a, I was joking around the Kirk Goldsberry of tennis. I would also say if Albert Einstein had a tennis journalist doppelganger, it would be you. And I think that generation or that explanation speaks to that. Uh, you know, we got the chance to meet briefly in Cincinnati. So I meant that as a compliment. I hope you know. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, again, so that makes complete sense to me. And again, Generation Grigor is going to be the center of this conversation. But as you look as a generation, you talked about the obvious marks, right? Who's the first in the group to make a Grand Slam final? Who's the first in the group to win a Masters event, win their first ATP title, crack the top 50, crack the top 10, all of these mm -hmm. different metrics. Um, but the metric you turn to in your graphs, and I think it shows the correlation beautifully, is you compare the the most points the players have accumulated in a single season. So their best single season, whether it be, you know, the, the number you really turn to is 4,000 ATP points, and we'll get to that in a second. But the highest points indexed against the age they broke through into the ATP top 50. Why are those the two metrics you turn to? Well, so tennis ranking points is is one of the, easiest ways to get a sense of the the relative strength of, of, of players if you want to get uber geeky some people like elo rankings and 
I've never really taken to that. I, I, I got it from chess. I've never really taken to it in tennis. But if you go to the ATP website or you go to the WTA website, you can see how many ranking points a player has. Uh, and then you can go back in time and see, as I said, their career arcs. You can compare players across periods of time. Between um, 2000 and 2008, the ranking points were codified to make it very, very straightforward. You've got 1,000 points for winning a Grand Slam. You got 500 points for winning a Masters. Uh, you got... Uh, I think it was 700 points for for uh, being a Grand Slam finalist. So you could basically take a look at the way that players had performed in a year and get a sense of their strength. Now, in 2009, you had a slight change in the rankings. You had a doubling of the uh, the win score. You had a slight variance in the the final and semi-final score. So again. If you want to get uber geeky, you have to look at 2000 to 2008, 2009 onwards and, and treat them slightly differently. But by and large, if you just double the points total from 2000 to 2008 and you take a look at what you had from 2009 to the present day, you get a good sense of how strong players were. So you go back to, to Generation Fed you have Federer, who obviously is is absolutely the head of the class. Uh, you know, someone who was head and shoulders above his peers. But you had some very strong other players who you've already mentioned: Leighton Hewitt, uh, Marat Safin, Andy Roddick, uh, other players that we can get into. Then you get into the Generation Rafa group: uh, Nadal himself, Djokovic, who has the highest points total of anyone. Uh, that you know, you, you you go back all all, all the way back. Djokovic's uh, 2015 2016 season, you know, far and away the 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 best that we've seen. Uh, but you've got Murray, you've got uh, Del Potro, Vavrinka, you know, players who who were very very strong. Then we get to the next generation, Generation Grigor. And all of a sudden, things change. You get to the generation after that, Generation Nick. They're still emerging. Their average age is about 23. But you look at the highest ranking points that the most recent generation have gotten, the titles that they've won. And for me, that becomes something like the, the old uh, Sherlock Holmes story, The Silver Blaze, where you have the, you know, well, what was it about the dog? And... Well, the dog didn't bark. Yes, that was the thing that was surprising. And for the last six years or so, what I've been seeing is that the, the first story that people talk about with the ATP is almost invariably the big three or the big four. Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, Murray. The story they don't talk about is the fact that players have not come along to challenge them. So that was something that I got really interested in and started uh, started researching. 
And again, the piece on TennisAccent.com most recently, a portrait of ATP generations as young men. You can see these graphs we are discussing uh, in case the, you know the super geeking goes over your head that it really does do a nice demonstration that you compare again uh, their maximum points in a season against the age they broke through the top 50. And I'm sure we will get back into the criteria, but you sort of set the scenes there. So let's get into the Generation Grigor con- uh, conversation now. You talk about the drop-off between uh, the heights we saw from the Generation Nadal best players by the time they were 23 in comparison to how Generation Grigor did. And when you are looking at the benchmarks, again, this is the last criteria for Generation Grigor, starting with uh, the beginning. When did you start to become concerned, and what was it about their earliest years in these 2010s that concerned you uh, and was the, you know— inspiration for these pieces so um i think that i saw stan vavrinka post a a photograph from uh the time that he qualified for the first time for the the london world tour finals which was 2013 so he was on eurostar uh and he had a a shot of him taking the eurostar train to london because he was going to play in the world tour finals which, you know, good for Stan, a late career for, you know, first time World Tour finalist, but well done, Stan. And then I took a look back to 2012 and and there was uh, Janko Tipsarovic had been the first time finalist then. And uh, I, I couldn't find Janko on the Eurostar, but I did find Janko posing in Speedos. So I put that in the, the piece that I wrote on uh, the changeover. You go back to 2011, and Marty Fish was a first-time finalist in London. Um, and Marty Fish was was something of a veteran. So this was interesting that, that three years in a row you had these veteran players become first-time finalists. And I, I started scratching my head and said, well, where are the young players? And so I started looking around, and, and, and no player at that time who was born later than Del Potro, who was born in 1988, qualified for the World Tour Finals. So the youngest player to make it to the World Tour Finals was Del Potro. And looking again, the youngest player to win a Masters tournament by late 2013 was Novak Djokovic, who was born in May uh, 1987. Djokovic uh, is born a week after Murray, so, you know, they're almost twins. But basically, Murray and Djokovic were the youngest players to have won a Masters. And they were, you know, by that time, they were 26. Uh, Del Potro, who'd beaten Federer in 2009, was then the youngest player to have won a Grand Slam, and he was 25. So all of a sudden, there was this little light bulb going off above my head, which was, where are the young guys? You know, nobody is winning anything in their early 20s. So it was the dog that wasn't barking in the night that people were talking about um, up-and-coming players. Raonic was an up-and-coming player. Uh, Nishikori was an up-and-coming player. Dimitrov was an up-and-coming player. But then you looked at what they'd done, and, and by that time, they really hadn't done anything. Yeah. 
I mean, and so again, that gets to the crux of this conversation, which is about this generation, Grigor, their lack of ability to break through. And you talked about, well, is it just that none of them could beat the big four? And we'll get into some of these specific players and their head-to-head records and whether that's the case for them or not, whether you believe so, whether it's a product of other things. But one of the other litmus tests, again, how your max point achieved, and it's very simple, you know, you achieve points for winning matches. And so the more you win, the more points you'll have. It is the litmus test of how you've done in a season, but Jamie McDonald, who I did our GSP uh, podcast about the best ATP, ATP players, excuse me, who could not win a slam in the 2010s, got mad at me because I talked about things like, you know, how did they do at the Masters events? Were they playing consistently? Were they making, you know, quarterfinals, semifinals, finals there to indicate that they could compete with the best in other uh, areas other than the slams? Were they making World Tour finals indicative of them being top eight, top five players in a single season? And you look at this generation, Grigor, that is one of the big things that stands out. And it's from your chart from June 2019 of this year. And the only thing that may have improved, I'm not sure if this season was Dominic Team's most points accumulated ever. He's at the back end of generation Grigor 1993, which you can take with it however you want. Um, but he had a 5,000 point season, I believe, or right near it this year. Uh, no yeah, about 5,500. Exactly. So he has had uh, maybe, is that his best season? Yes. So you look at that now, and in terms of the chart, it's two people who have eclipsed, or sorry, excuse me, now with team, it is uh, four people who have eclipsed 5,000 points in a season. It's him, it's Dimitrov, it's Rayonic, and Kei Nishikori. And Kei Nishikori is the only guy who's eclipsed 6,000. So just so you listeners know what that looks like, I believe that was 2016. His Grand Slam results, quarterfinals, fourth round, fourth round, semifinals, semifinals at the ATP Tour Finals, uh, semifinals with a bronze medal at the Olympics. I don't know if he got points for that, but that's certainly a bonus in my mark. Um, quarterfinals at one Masters event, two semifinals, and two finals at the Masters. So that's, you know, that that is what one of those elite seasons look like, and yet that's the biggest uh, biggest red alert sign, right? It's that only four guys have even been able to eclipse that five thousand point mark. Right, and then when you go, uh, you know, you go to the the next earlier generation to generation Rafa, you've got Djokovic, Nadal, and Murray, all of whom have gotten more than 10,000 points. Vavrinka, Del Potro, Sodeling have all been higher than 6,000 points. Songa, Berdik, and Chilich have all been higher than 5,000 points. And you go uh, one generation earlier to the Federer generation, and as I say, it's a little bit, uh, you've you got to be a bit careful because of the changeover in the points tallies before 2008. But basically, Federer is above 16,000. Uh, Hewitt and Roddick, round about the 10,000 mark. Ferrero at 9,000. Safin at 8,600. Um, Coria and Ferrer uh, in the 7,000s range. We were making tennis players who were able to uh, win tournaments across the years and compete in the quarterfinal and semifinal stage regularly up until um, 
you know, the, 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 the late 2000s or so that they seem to come out regularly, that you would have players every year who were able to compete at, at that high level. And then we, we kind of stopped making them for a while, arguably until uh, Zverev and Medvedev sort of come on the scene quite recently. But there's this huge gap. And I think that getting into why that is, is as interesting a question as saying what it is. So in, in, in terms of the actual results, no Generation Gregor player or Generation Nick player or Generation Felix player has won a Grand Slam. Only the, the only players who are still competing who have won Grand Slams are Federer and then some Generation Rafa players. So there is... Um, no one born after Marin Cilic who has won a Grand Slam. And Cilic was 31 this year. Uh, you, you go to the, the finals and only four finals have featured a Generation Gregor player. Two of those were Dominic Team uh, at Roland Garros in 2018 and 2019. Kei Nishikori played the U.S. Open 2014 final. Milos Raonic played the Wimbledon 2016 final. And one way to, to, to understand how unusual this is, is to think about this in terms of the five-year stretches that, that I use to, to, to set the, the generations. And you'd say, okay, suppose that we only allowed players born within a five-year stretch to compete in major competitions. So we made it age limited. Now, if you did that, what you would expect is that you would have 20 players from each generation would win a Grand Slam. 20 players would be runners-up finalists. 40 players would be semi-finalists. 80 players would be quarter-finalists and 160 players would make the round of 16, and then you can sort of double up as you, as you go down the various lower levels. But we would expect each generation to have about 20 winners, about 20 finalists, about 40 semi-finalists. And so far, Generation Grigor, which is now beginning to age out of its peak period, which used to be 23 to 28. And again, we can talk a little bit about what peak periods mean. But Generation Grigor has zero winners and just four finalists. And we would have expected 20 and 20. Yeah, I mean, if that doesn't, again, this is the Nerd Out podcast. And if that doesn't speak to the lack of success for Generation Greek, or I don't know what does. And we use that 5,000-point mark. I mean, even if you lower the bar, people who had 4,000 points or more from Generation uh, Rafa, you look at guys like Gasquet, right? A Baghdadis, a Simone, even a Monfils who got awfully close to that barrier. But guys who, a uh, Burdich, who, you know, not quite the 6,000, but good seasons. A Tomas Burdich, a guy we talked about, you look at his career. You know, Tomas Burdich has one slam final, six slam semifinals, 
semifinals, nine slam quarterfinals. And it's like that that's almost more successful on its own than the entirety of Generation Grigor. It's really just, uh, you know, those four guys we mentioned. And what makes it even more disappointing is, you know, that they didn't produce the Simones of the world, that they didn't even produce a Baghdadis thus far. It's really just been Nishikori, Rayonich, Dimitrov team. And honestly, I would throw Gofen in that mix. He's been fine. Um, but I want to talk about those five guys specifically because sure. those have been and and I want we can get back to the larger trends I'm sure throughout the course of the conversation but those guys in particular are the face of the generation right maybe even Jack Sock as well he's a guy you could throw in that mix given how good he was at his one year that he is such a successful doubles player that he continues to be in such a highly esteemed event such as Labor Cup to get that sort of exposure he certainly qualifies as almost an epitome of this generation um but I want to start with a guy like Kane Ishikori specifically, who you look at his career. You know, he made that Grand Slam final in 2014, probably the, I mean, not probably, the single best opportunity for any non-Big Four player to win a slam of the decade was that 2014 U.S. Open final where Kane Ishikori, you know, he loses to Marin Cilic, but along the way, you know, he beats uh, Novak Djokovic in four sets in the semifinals. He beats Stan Wawrinka in the quarterfinals, two of the staples of the generation above him. That was his moment, and, you know, it's not as though he hasn't been consistent, right? You look at the last, let's see, the past uh, seven slams, he's gone fourth round or better. You extend that out to 10, he has one third round. You extend that out to 14, still just the one third round appearance. In his last 18 slams, he has made the fourth round or better in all but three of them. I mean, that is constant success. And so this is a guy who, no, he doesn't have a master's final but when people say it's, you know, these guys couldn't beat the big four, that's why he came up short. Don't you feel that is a justified case for Kane Ishikori? Because by every other metric, he was the best guy of this generation. Yeah, but having watched Kane play live a few times, he's he's the Nikolai Davidenko of, of this era. Uh Davidenko, one of my favorite quotes about him was uh, from Del Potro when he played him in the uh, 2009 London World Tour Finals. And so it's like playing PlayStation, you know, that Davidenko <laughs> would shuttle backwards and forwards, you know, take the ball really early at the baseline, didn't volley terribly well, didn't serve terribly well, but was Davidenko was a, was a very tough out, beat Nadal in uh, Miami, Masters final. Um, so a, 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 a strong player, um, but that is as strong as as you've gotten. Nishikori, I think, like a number of players in this generation, has, has dealt with injury issues. So you look at Raonic as well uh, in this generation, that Raonic, if, he, if he'd been able to to stitch together three or four years without dealing with significant injuries, you know, who knows what kind of career he might have had. Um, so I, I think one of the things that um, I want to be clear about is that saying that a player didn't reach the very highest levels of the open era uh, isn't 
critical of, of, of their effort or of their achievement. But I've always been interested not just in, in, in the, the, the very top players for a generation. And I, I, you know, I do want to um, you know, talk a little bit about individual players, but also the, the total cohort of players because to get to a Masters final or to get to a Grand Slam final, you have to beat players along the way to win a, a Grand Slam. You have to get through seven matches to win a Masters. Typically, you have to win five or six matches if you're, if you're a seed. So it doesn't just count about the, the, the very top players that you play in the final. It counts about who you play in the semi-final, who you play in the quarter-final, uh, who you play in the round 16 as well. And in the round of 16, you may play an up-and-coming player from the next generation, or you may play a veteran from, from the older generations. So Nishikori is a, you know, he is, he is the highest ranked player of his generation in terms of his rating points. Um, and I, I always think of the US Open final in 2014 as I don't know if anyone was beating Marin Cilic that year. You know, Cilic just basically caught lightning in a bottle beat Berdich in the quarterfinals in straight sets, beat Federer in the semifinals in straight sets after Federer had seen Djokovic going out and Federer must have thought, hey, wait a second, I may have a shot here. And then Cilic gave him no opportunity at all and beat Nishikori in straight sets. So that, that particular year, that was Marin Cilic's year. I was ready to include Marin Cilic in this generation and his run could be a story of the decade itself, that he was the guy of this group of non-Big Four players. Stan, that he did it three times, sort of reinforced the fact that, okay, he can be that good in the biggest moment, so that you saw it multiple times. You kind of understand how he won the slams, but that Chilich was the guy who got the slam of this group, because you look at Nishikori against his contemporaries. Look, in terms of the Big Four, 3-7 and seven against Fed, 2-9 and nine against Murray, 2-11 and 11 against Nadal, 2-16 and 16 against Djokovic. That hurts. That's going to keep you from winning a slam because, you know, for, uh, as I mentioned, for Nishikori, you look at the past slams, quarterfinal, uh, third round at the U.S. Open, but before that, quarterfinal, 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 semifinal, quarterfinal, fourth round at his last seven. You can guess who a lot of those losses were, too. And But you look at him against his contemporaries, 5-1 and one against Grigor, 10-4 uh, and four against a Ferrer, 5-2 and two against Raonic, 9-6 and six against Marin Cilic. Yeah, he lost the big one, but still, you know, 4-7 and seven against Stan, that's fine. I mean, this guy was as good as any other player. And so in terms of him individually, I'm curious for you, was it the injuries? What was it to you? Why do you think, because, you know, four Masters finals, uh, seven Masters semifinals, I think he made something like nine Masters quarterfinals as well. We, you know, he made uh, three out of, the, or now four out of the past six uh, World Tour finals. He's ended the year in the top 10 a bunch of times. He was as good as anyone not big four related. So what was it to you that held him back on the court? What was it tennis-wise, do you think, that kept him from winning that slam this decade? The serve? Sure. 
I, I, you know, watching him play, it was harder for him to win free points with his serve. Um, to a certain extent, you, you don't know how much you can invoke luck, but I wonder if he beats Nadal in that Madrid final where he, he had the back injury. He, he was cruising against Nadal had a back injury and lost. And I wonder if that gives him any additional confidence. Um, but also he, he could... So there, there's another match that I remember extremely well, which was the uh, round of 16 match he played against Federer in 2017 at the Australian Open, where Federer was coming back from injury had looked extremely scratchy his first couple of rounds and then had handled Thomas Burdick quite comfortably in the the third round, but came up against Nishikori in the fourth round. I don't think Federer expected, he certainly didn't expect to win the tournament. I think he probably thought, if I go out against Kay, okay, that's not a bad uh, comeback after injury. And Nishikori completely blitzed Federer in the first set, was leading 5-1 and serving for the set, and allowed Federer back into the match, um, won the tie break in the first set, but Federer then won the, the next two sets, Nishikori won the fourth, and, and, and Federer won the fifth set. And that was a match that, that I thought, really got away from Nishikori that as a recreational tennis player, I, I I've actually been in a match which I've won six love, six love, which is a doubles match. <laughs> and my partner and I at each changeover, you know, from three love, five love, uh, one love in the second set at each changeover, we said to each other, keep your foot on their throat. You know, don't lift the foot, keep your foot on their throat. And I, I, I guess with Nishikori, there, there's never really been the sense that I've had that he's been a keep your foot on the throat player. Djokovic I... has it, Nadal has it, Federer has it. The, the really top players, it's, uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to crush that windpipe. Yeah, I, the point I really like that you turn to is how much more difficult it is for Kine Shikori to do things easily on the court, right? He's not six foot four to six foot six. He doesn't have the bomb serve. The, I mean, he takes the ball early and aggressively and hits a huge ground stroke, obviously. And that's how he's had so much success. But he, it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of movement. It takes a lot of energy. Everything he does on the court is frantic, right? He's always, you know, trying to beat you to the spot, and it's hard to maintain that level of play against the top players in the world for uh, two weeks in a row. Especially when, as you mentioned, it's hard. You're not getting the easy love holds with just ace, 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 ace. That sometimes a Del Potro or a guy we'll talk about in a second, a Rayonich, was able to get and propel themselves forward. Another missed opportunity 
opportunity for me, Nishikori probably kicking himself, that 2016 U.S. Open, right? Because he knocks off Andy Murray in the quarterfinals, Murray having the season of his life in 2016, then just kind of ran out of gas post-Olympics. Um, but Nishikori was coming off of a bronze as well, and he wins that first set against Stan Wawrinka in the semis, 6-4, uh, you know, loses the second 7-5, sem- and it goes on to lose the match in four. But he would have faced in the final a Novak Djokovic, who wasn't by any means having a great 2016. I mean, we saw him struggle in 2017 uh, throughout the year as a part of, you know, he was injured dealing with a bunch of different things. So Nishikori definitely had his chances, and I agree with you. I think it was a physical thing that always, or it's just, it was always so difficult for him. Uh, it just, it wasn't as easy, I suppose, as the better framework as some of the other guys. He didn't have just the big weapon to turn to to end points, a Del Potro, Stan Wawrinka forehand type of thing. And so that's why, you know, you see him now struggling with injuries, and we can round off the Nishikori conversation here, but I'm curious for you, Andrew. Um, do you think Nishikori's window is closed? Do you think in the 2020s he will still be a threat potentially? Because we saw, you know, you mentioned guys like Stan, like Chilich, who did it uh, later in their careers, winning their first slam. Now, Kevin Anderson's a guy who's come close as well, uh, but those are all guys with big weapons, and so that's not Nishikori's script. Do you think his window's open still or closed? Um, yeah, this is this is one of those you know, buy, sell, hold kinds of conversations. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I, I'd be surprised. I, I, I would be pleased for him. I would be very pleased for Asian tennis. If he did, uh, make another deep run. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, and, and one of the things that, you know, we'll, we'll go back to one of the overarching themes, which is not so much individual players as, uh, as it is the the cohorts and the, and the the way that ATP tennis unfolds. One of the things that I worried about back in 2013 and 2014 is that we would get to a situation where you'd have 128 players enter a tournament and one of them would win it. And that sounds kind of goofy because you know, well, <laughs> you know, that's the point of having these tournaments. But basically, that it would be random. I think you said that there was something like six ATP t- players and nineteen WTA players mm-hmm. who had won in uh, the twenty tens, which sounded about right to me. Because when you take a look at the the semifinalists at ATP Grand Slams and at WTA Grand Slams, the WTA Grand Slams over the last few years have been kind of random which is not to say that they're not great athletes. It's not to say that they're not good tennis players. But the WTA Grand Slams recently have been kind of like any given Sunday, you will have someone in the semifinal and potentially in the final. And for me, tennis is really interesting where you have the right kind of mix between players who you expect to be competing in the last three rounds because they're high seeds. And then some players who are either making their way up, um, you know, because they're going to be the stars of the future. And then maybe a player who's having the tournament of his life or her life, or uh, an older player like Nishikori, who will be in his thirties in at the Australian open, you know, maybe they're having, 
their last or their last but one hurrah. So Nishikori could be a player who in 2020 or 2021 wins his first Grand Slam. That could happen. But I, what I was very nervous about five or six years or so ago was that you would have a number of players who would win Grand Slam tournaments and you'd be kind of going, huh? Him? <laughs> or huh? Her? And so for me, the ATP Dark Age, which is what I wrote about, was that you, you, you'd go through this period where you'd have kind of random guys who tennis fans might recognize. You'd have a guy, uh, and you know, if there are fans of Pablo Carreño Busta listening to your podcast who <laughs> go, oh my God, I can't believe you said Pablo Carreño Busta is a random guy. I'm so shocked and I'm never tuning into Alex's podcast again. Well, I apologize for that. <laughs> but Pablo Carreño Busta, to me, is kind of like, you know, random guy. But he's, um, he's the seventh highest rated person in Generation Grigor. And then you've got, um, you know, you go down to the 10th highest, Marco Ketsonato. The 11th highest is Nicholas Basilashvili. You know, you, you've, you've got guys who, you know, maybe one year it's their year at the Australian Open. But you look around and you sort of go, okay, who is tuning in to watch tennis? Because random guy wins three out of four, not the same three out of the four. They wouldn't be random guy in that case. But random guy wins three out of the four majors in 2021, 2022, 2023, 2024. Now, I had expected that would have happened in 2017, 2018, 2019, because I did not expect that the big three would have the longevity that they did. Um, and so, you know, you get to... Uh, 2017, that split between Federer and Nadal, you get to 2018, that split between Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, you get to 2019, that split between Nadal and Djokovic. The last three years, it hasn't been random guys winning majors because it's been the big three winning majors with now Nadal uh, aged 33, Djokovic aged 32, and Federer, God love him, age 38. <laughs> well, let me offer a slight counterpoint to that. And I agree with your sentiment at large, but just slight counterpoint specifically to that. I think we have started to see some cracks. And I think that shows the loosening of Generation Rafa in particular. Now you can counter, you know, the facts speak for themselves that Burdich, Sanga, um, guys like Andy Murray have dealt with injuries, but those guys are closer to exiting the scene than they are, obviously, to being in their prime. But you look more recently, guys like Hyun Chung, Kyle Edmund in 2018, Pass, and uh, who am I missing? Who, who's the other semifinalist this year in Australia? It was Pass and, oh, and Luca Pui. You look at guys like Marco Cecinato, obviously what uh, Medvedev was able to do at this U.S. Open, a guy like Berrettini, who, no, he's not at the 4,000-point threshold, but what you've seen from him this year you know, a Sangha-esque career doesn't seem impossible from him just given mm -hmm. how dominant that serve can be, right? So I think there have been more cracks as of recently, but 
Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, what would you argue to that counterpoint? That there does seem to be, and I mean, it's inevitable, right? These guys are are aging. Mother Nature's undefeated. Everyone knows that, except for against Roger Federer, apparently, and Serena. We'll throw both of them in there, but so you I, I do at, think there's been a slight crack. Yeah, you look at the World Tour Finals this year, and um, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev and Berrettini, they're all Generation Nick. Uh, so they're all born between 1994 and 1998. So half the players um, at the London World Tour Finals are coming from that grouping. That's more what we would have expected uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. There's just one member from Generation Grigor's dominant team who's going to be there, and then two from Generation Rafa, Nadal himself and Djokovic, one Generation Fed, the the ageless Federer himself. <laughs> well, um, and we should mention but, again, Dominic team in 1993, the very edge of the Grigor generation. Exactly. So if you want to yeah. throw him in with the Nick guys, you uh, that again speaks to the failure of everyone yeah. else in Generation yeah. Grigor. Yeah, so so I, I will be the first person to stick my hand up and say that uh, there is a degree of arbitrariness in saying, um, you know, why five year periods? Five sounded <laughs> right. I think that uh, there's no, a line very, in, it, in uh, it, it, Bedazzled have you where seen... Liz, Liz no, Hurley sorry, says, so I was thinking of uh, the movie Bedazzled with Brendan Fraser and Liz Hurley. Where she gives him seven wishes and just you know why seven? Well, seven sounded right. Five feels right for ATP generation. So my counter to that, to give the generation Nick equivalent, would be in the social network when Justin Timberlake walks in and says, "Drop the the," just Facebook. It's cleaner than that. You know, it's uh-huh, cleaner like there you that. Go. That's the yeah. equivalent. Yeah. So um, the the thing that um, you. Life isn't well-ordered. It, it comes in lumps. So you don't expect every five years for exactly 20 Grand Slam wins, um, 20 finalists, 40 semifinalists at the majors. And then that would mean that uh, at, at the Masters final level, you would have uh, 45 winners 45 finalists, 90 semifinalists, and so on. I mean, we haven't mentioned, I think, the Masters wins and finals. You know, there's there's been three Masters 1,000 wins for Generation Gregor and about 11 or 12 finalists. The amazing thing is, at, at all levels, Generation Gregor is off the charts awful. You know, quarterfinalists, round of 16, even numbers of entrants. I don't think they've ever had a tournament at the Masters or Grand Slam level where they've produced um, more than about 45% of the entrants, whereas Generation Rafa, Generation Fed at their peak were putting in 60% of the entrants. So this, this, this grouping of players has been... Awful. Um, you you have this between September 1988 when you had a family in Argentina cradling uh, a young lad who 
grow up to six foot six and win a US Open in 2008. Then you had a family in Croatia five days later, cradling another lad who grew up to be about six foot five and would win the same tournament five years later. So that's El Potro and Cilic. And then you basically, you kind of skip all the way now to, to Medvedev and, and Zverev as sort of multi-masters winners. So Daniel Medvedev, uh, you know, flamed out in Paris, but I think he might have had London on his mind, and he, he's not done that badly recently. Uh, reached the final of, I think, five successive tournaments, final of um, Montreal, uh, one Cincinnati. That's impressive. And Medvedev is is a contender. You have Zverev, uh, who has three uh, wins under his belt and was the youngest player uh, to is is currently the youngest player I think to hold a, a Masters 1000 crown. Khachanov was born in 1996. Um, Medvedev in 1996, Zverev in 1997. So you've got these these younger guys, 1996, born in 1996, born in 1997, but you have this enormous gap between 1988 and 1996, 1997 to find these consistent winners. So that's um, something that I... I think has 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 really stamped tennis in the 2010s. The the absence of a, a cohort of players. And I, I I keep on coming back to that that question. Why did why did that happen? And we have we have some theories about that. Uh, and you know maybe we can start talking about not just the what but the why. I hope you all have enjoyed part one of our best of the decade, the lost gen ATP conversation with the one and only Andrew Burton. Now, Andrew being of tennis with an accent fame, much like his coworker, Matt Zemek, these boys can talk and why we enjoy having them so much is the depth they go into. That's what makes for such a fun conversation. So much like last week's episode with Matt, we've decided to break this one into two parts. Rest assured listeners, there is an entire second hour of ATP lost gen analysis and coverage. You know, part one, we got into the what's of the issue. Part two really gets into the why the lost gen hasn't been able to live up to the previous generation. So be on the lookout for that part of the podcast dropping, I believe, either Wednesday or Thursday morning. But for any of you who need other content to fill your ears, don't worry. We at Cracked Rackets would never leave you guys hanging. So many, so much good work at our website, CrackedRackets.com. Matt Koyak getting up in action with his college contender series, breaking down the 2019-2020 teams that are going to dominate this college season. Of course, me, him, Chris Hallioris discussing that article and setting the scene for it every Monday night for Tuesday morning's mini break podcast. That mini break podcast, of course, like, rate, subscribe, review, uh, leave for that, as well as our Cracked Interviews podcast as well. We've had so many great guests on recently, a lot of college as well. Paul Jubb came on last week. The Yale ITA doubles champion Sam Martinelli and Jesse Gong have come on. Uh, you know, the work Vicky Duvall is doing, interviewing Anna Konya, interviewing Lauren 
Embry. Those were great interviews, so if you've missed any of those, go check those out. So again, it takes 15 seconds to leave a little rating and review, so I promise I will stop saying this as soon as the numbers meet up. And we're getting closer and closer, but we're not there yet. We're actually not getting much closer. Come on, listeners. Make the push. I don't want to do this. You think I like coming back here and asking, you know, after you just listened to an hour of me ranting to do another thing for me? Of course I don't want to do that. So just get it over with. I do it. Westoff, it's a chain of events. Dalton bothers Westoff. Westoff bothers me. I ask Westoff for the world. So if he asks me for one thing, it's the least I can do. So please, if not for me, do it for Westoff. Make his life easier. And by the way, a huge shout out to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, who, as always, have a f***ing editing job to do and who we love keeping busy at our Crack Rackets Network all week long. But with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host, Andrew Burton, who, again, uh, Burton AD on Twitter. You can find his most recent work at Tennis with an Accent. But for our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westoff, and from our entire team at Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we will see you later in the week for part two. Thanks, everyone.